Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Elliot Brown, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and co-author of The Cult of We, We Work, Adam Newman, and The Great Startup Delusion, which he co-authored with Maureen Farrell, a fellow reporter at the Journal. I'll have a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Elliot, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Happy to be here. Elliot, it's great to have you here to talk about the story of WeWork. I'm going to assume that most of the listeners are roughly familiar with the contours of that story, the rise and fall of WeWork, the role of Adam Newman at WeWork. Listeners, if you're not quite familiar with it yet, I would encourage you to maybe take a pause on this episode and go read some of the reporting that Elliot and his co-author have done at the journal, purchase this book and get some of that background before proceeding to this episode. But assuming that you do have that background, I want to maybe ask Elliot just as an introductory question, you and your co-author you're both financial reporters. You've worked on a lot of stories. You've covered WeWork over the years. Of all the stories that you've reported on, what was it about this one that inspired you to write a book? Oh, man. This was by far the craziest, kind of wackiest, most engaging thing I've covered. I've been at the Journal 10 years. I've been at a couple other papers for a few years before that. And the fun stuff comes and goes and the dynamic, interesting stuff comes and goes. But WeWork was really just had it all. You, you both journalistically, you had this incredibly engaging character and a set of characters in Adam Newman and Masayoshi Son, the, the, his main funder, and Adam Newman, the CEO. But then you also just had this, it, it, it was the really just large destruction of value. I mean, on paper, $40 billion essentially disappeared really rapidly in a way that had been somewhat predictable but also was the result of some really hideous corporate governance failures and really irresponsible actions. I think it had it all and was really clear to me going into the summer of 2019 that there was some sort of book that was going to be here. And then we were imploded in this giant inferno and in fall 2019. And then it was like incredibly obvious, okay, we, we need to get moving on doing a book right now. And actually, it was the day that Adam resigned that we got our offer from our publisher that we worked with. What's the process of writing a book like this? Is it the reporting that you're doing already, but just more of it, more deeply sourced? Or is it a different experience? Or was it a different experience for you versus your day-to-day job as a reporter? I would say there are a lot of similarities between our day-to-day jobs, but this was definitely supercharged. The longest stories we'll write are usually like 2,000 words, and this book was 118,000 words. There's a lot more that goes into that. There's a lot more character development, which just isn't something you you think about ever for a 2,000-word journalistic piece. And you need to have the arc of a story. And again, that's not something magazine writers think about that all the time. But newspaper reporters, you can just move facts around and paragraphs can go up or down. We had to tell a story that was chronological. So there's the storytelling element. And then I guess the depth, we were just able to really explore some things that were too wonky for the paper or too much in history. And here we could really dive deep 
uh, sort of Adam Newman's wife's personal history and growing up in this Gatsby-like life. And we could also dive deep on things like community-adjusted EBITDA and explain how it deviates from gap accounting. Yeah, they, it was kind of fun in, in both respects. I look forward to talking about community-adjusted EBITDA <laughs> in, in just a moment, but the title that you chose is really striking, The Cult of WeWork. And I wondered if you can maybe talk a little bit about in what ways WeWork was a cult. It's obviously had some significant management changes, so would you still refer to it as a cult? And in that vein, would it be similar to say, or to talk about, say, the cult of Tesla or the cult of Facebook or the cult of even Salesforce? I would say that the, the title was 60% tongue-in-cheek, 40% real. WeWork is certainly cult-like, was uh, past tense, cult-like. And to your broader point, Silicon Valley at startups are, are often quite cult-like. I think there's a lot of, we mean this in a bunch of different ways here, but for an employee who worked at WeWork, I think it was very much like a cult in that you had a leader. He had you believing something almost like a religion, which was that WeWork is not a real estate company. It's making the world a better place by bringing people together. And it's somehow a tech company. But it was very much like you have to drink the Kool-Aid. You have to be rah-rah. And there is this guy at the top driving everything. And the organization resembles all his beliefs and, and proclivities. So that's one. But then, yeah, I think that in general in Silicon Valley right now, there's a lot of both on the investor side and the startup side, a lot of viewing companies almost like religions. And in the same way that employees at Facebook for a long time really thought they were making the world a better place. And a lot of people there still do. And ignoring the obvious negative things that they were doing. And on the investor side, just suspending disbelief and throwing money at things because you like the founder and the cult-like personality. You note that one of the things that you had to believe to be a WeWorker was that it was a tech company, not a real estate company. And this was a controversial claim, particularly leading up to the 2019 attempted IPO. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that dichotomy between a real estate company versus a tech company? And where did you and your co-author fall on that question? I started covering WeWork because I was a real estate reporter and it was actually, uh, this is a telling anecdote for the whole tale for years to come. So I met Adam Newman in, in 2013 in his office in lower Manhattan. And one of the first things he says to me is, you're a real estate reporter. Why are you covering us? I don't think you're the right person for this story. Don't you have anyone at the journal who covers communities or urban vitality and entrepreneurship? And I said, I still think it would be me, but i um, happy to hear you out on that. WeWork went to extraordinary efforts to really position itself as not a real estate company. Depending who they were talking to, it was a tech company, it was an AI company, it was just a community company, whatever that meant. It was a consciousness elevation company. They said their, their mission was to elevate the world's consciousness, but it just wasn't a real estate company. And the reason for that is because real estate companies are valued much less than, say, a software company, because the economic profile of them is just that it's only going to be so profitable. Whereas a software company in an ideal world, every time you get a new user, a new buyer, you just ship them some code through the tubes of the internet and they pay you money. And so that there's not marginal cost to every additional user. But with real estate, every time you add a desk, you need to build the desk. You need to lease more square footage. You need to buy new glass and aluminum. And so that there's a cost to that. This is a long way of saying that if you're valued like a real estate company, you're worth a lot less. And if you're worth a lot less than a software company, or conversely, if you're a software company and you're worth a lot more than a real estate company, you can raise a lot of money. 
And raising money is what allowed WeWork to grow. Raising money became the entire WeWork story. They raised more than any U.S. startup ever other than Uber uh, at the time, raising over $10 billion for what was very much at the heart a not particularly good real estate company. Whether WeWork was a tech company or whether it was a real estate company, it raised a lot of money and it had big waves or big wake, so to speak. I wonder if you could talk about the aftermath of its downfall from the heights of late 2019. Has that led to some disruption or downstream effects in the real estate industry? I believe at one point it was the largest leaser of commercial real estate. Has that had an impact on urban real estate markets? Has it had an impact on the tech markets or the soft markets in terms of VC funding or their valuations, et cetera? A few things. After we were cratered in 2019 and Adam Newman was ousted and the valuation plunged by 80%, an icy chill went over Silicon Valley in terms of startup funding, especially for these late stage startups. And WeWork was part of this era where losses really didn't matter. And people really were not thinking about losses. And there was just this kind of collective delusion going on where everyone in Silicon Valley was just only focused on revenue growth and kept just saying, Uber is just going to take over the world. And so is Lyft. And so I thought the point, you were only going to have one of these and that's why it was going to be profitable. But so there was just this sort of ever growing mission creep of these startups where everything needed to be bigger. And so losses today didn't matter because they were all going to have extraordinary profits in the future. But then I think we were really helped exposed coming on some concerns with Lyft and Uber, that dream was flawed. Suddenly, it became really hard for startups to raise money. It became really hard for real estate startups to raise money, particularly anything, a co-working company. And there was a chill there. In terms of the real estate market, WeWork had been having an effect on leasing. And so, yeah, the occupancy rates of buildings or cities weren't going down as quickly because we were had really become a giant tenant and the biggest tenant in a lot of major cities. But overall, it's, uh, it, it still wasn't like some huge chunk of the market. That said, they ended up creating this market that for flexible office space, given that they have so much you know office space now, and that spurred other landlords to do something similar. When we talk about the story of WeWork, Adam Newman is obviously the most prominent character in that story. But Masayoshi's son, the founder of SoftBank, the founder of the Vision Fund, is a major character as well, particularly in the last few years of WeWork's history. I wonder if we could talk about how he encouraged Newman's sense of grandiosity. It seems like there's maybe a feedback effect between the two as well. Before SoftBank and Masasun came along, the biggest investors in WeWork were the traditional VCs, some alternative VC funds like mutual funds, university endowments. How did those investors and their vision, their investment thesis differ from Masasun and his vision? And how did the entry of Masasun affect WeWork's trajectory? There's a couple of ways to look at that. I think one of the broad points here is that WeWork was always overvalued. WeWork was always crazy. Adam was always crazy. But when SoftBank came in, it, things got just more of everything. What I mean by that is for the first seven years of WeWork's existence, Adam was largely positioning the company as a fundraising company. That's what he focused the most on. And he would find investors that viewed them as a tech company that wanted them actively. They bought into Adam's vision that WeWork should be just pervasive across first the country, then the world and grow and grow. And Adam was doing kind of crazy things like they bought a company that made surf pools. So you can go surfing in the middle of an Olympic sized swimming pool because it makes waves. And he was flying private by renting jets. So after Masta comes in and gives 
we work $4 billion, that changes things to the point where everything got much crazier. So they bought a private jet for $63 million, for instance, and then they started their own kindergarten. They, Adam talked about buying Lyft. He talked about buying Sweetgreen. And it was just these sort of like increasingly strange deviations from the course and plainly a lot more money. And one of the things that happened is sort of in history, there's the concept that history is actually the product, not so much of the great man, but of the workers and swung back and forth between do you emphasize the great man or or the workers? This (laughs) here, things were very much accelerated by the great man theory, where you had two really combustible personalities meeting each other and feeding off each other. And so the best anecdote for that is Soon after Masayoshi Son commits $4 billion to WeWork, Adam flies to Tokyo to finish up the deal. And he's sitting there at lunch with Masa, and you have the CEO of Didi, essentially the Uber of China, that had beaten Uber in China. And so Masa says, do you know why Cheng Wei beat Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber in China? It's not because he was smarter than Travis. It's because he was crazier. And then he tells Adam, in a fight, who wins, the the smart guy or the crazy guy? The answer is the crazy guy. Like, you need to be crazier. And so Adam actually even recognized, he would tell people, I thought I was crazy already, but Masa wants me to become crazier. And so these meetings would actually lead Adam to be like, I need to think even bigger, like global domination is not enough. And that was a huge factor in just how high altitude the, the plane got before its tailspin. Did the existing investors during this transition to the relationship between Adam and Masayoshi's son, did existing investors push back at any point or were they happy to go along for the ride because things were growing, valuation was going up, the company was getting bigger, or did they see some potential concerns there or did they encourage Adam to pursue the sort of soft bank vision fund approach? I think largely they were supportive, certainly at first, of the idea. The issue with WeWork and sort of one of the crazy things about it is every year its revenue would grow and and double, but every year its losses would double. So every year it needed to fundraise more, double, uh, (laughs) to, to keep the lights on. And so I think they had to have recognized that was going on and that you would need to keep finding bigger fish. And Masa was the biggest fish in the sea. To a certain extent, I think they liked the idea of SoftBank given just how much money it was going to be and how high the valuation is. That said, I mean, they had been certainly some people internally and some on the board had been pushing for more discipline and trying to actually turn a profit as had been promised kind of year after year and never came. And so there had been this desire to have an IPO at some point, which I think they thought and hoped would bring some discipline because that's what the public markets are supposed to do. And the SoftBank was clearly delaying that. That said, they all almost got extremely rich because SoftBank almost ended up buying all of the early investors out when they were in 2018 kind of talking about this, what would have been the largest acquisition ever of a startup. And so I think you know all the investors were very much hoping that would happen. But at the last minute, that fell apart. So for years, Adam was raising money, the company was growing, and that was the general trajectory. And then in 2019, there is an attempt to go public around a a $47 billion valuation. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about the dynamics that were at play for why WeWork was looking to do an IPO at that time, at that price? What was going on that pushed it in that direction rather than just continuing raising money in the private capital markets? I think the basic issue is the numbers. 
WeWork was losing, as I said, double every year. Its losses kept doubling. Those numbers can get very big very quickly. It was $1 billion in 2018. It was $2 billion in 2019, or it could be getting those reversed, maybe it's 17 and 18. And then that's going to become four. Then it's going to become eight. And there's just not that much money at the time. There was just not that much money in the private markets outside of SoftBank. And SoftBank, at the start of toward the end of 2018, essentially told we were, we're done here. Like we, we thought we were going to be funding you forever and ever, but our investors, meaning Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, they don't like you. Our public market investors, we SoftBank, they don't like the idea of, of us doing a deal either. This fun party is coming to an end. From there, there was really only one place we were kept to turn. So they couldn't just suddenly started to become profitable and they couldn't have found other real large chunks of money around that I'm aware of. And so their one real viable option was to turn to the public markets and try to get money from them. And the kind of collision course this was on is the private markets were dramatically overvaluing them. And so they had been at the start of 2019 valued at 47 billion, which was more than FedEx. It was like the type of valuation was still very much a software valuation, whereas it was around the same size as WeWork's closest competitor, which has the same business model, and that's IWG, similar number of desks. and. Regis was worth $4 billion at the time. WeWork's over 10 times more valuable. It's just like such a huge difference to make up. That's the, the recipe was there. That's how I knew there was going to be a book because the recipe was there because WeWork is speeding along at this really high valuation. And Adam was completely obsessed with keeping that valuation high and making it higher because he gets richer. And the reality that their business is just this money losing real estate company. As WeWork was growing in revenue, it was growing in its losses as well. And you make the point that it had to go public because the profitability was very far off. And so it, that was the only option that it had. And earlier in the show, you mentioned some fun with non-GAAP accounting. And of course, some non-GAAP accounting can make lots of revenue growth and lots of losses look a little bit better. You mentioned things like community-adjusted EBITDA. Could you talk a little bit about the role of accounting at WeWork? Was it more aggressive than what other companies were doing? And how did that accounting coincide with its rise and fall? Did investors or private markets, do they believe in the non-GAAP numbers that were coming out? Or was it something that strained credibility? I think basically key to the way we were, would market itself to investors, one of the numbers they always bandied about, they talked about the press early on, they would always say how great their margins were. Like we have, when buildings up and running, we have profit margins of 35%, 30%, and meaning the cost of running the place is X. And then you look at all the expenses. And at the end of the day for that location, you're taking in 30% more than you spent. That was, I mean, that's a pretty good number, particularly for a real estate company and not absolutely fantastic. Actually, Regis has like similar numbers that are, I think they were 20%, 25%. They would always do that. Now, the reality behind that was this trick that I'll try to explain quickly. When you're leasing real estate, from an office building, you often get the first year free in the same way that if you rent an apartment, you get the first month free. And gap accounting makes you essentially account for that and to smooth over the whole cost of the lease so it doesn't look like you have a free year because the year isn't really free because you're paying for it in the remaining nine years. What WeWork did with community-adjusted EBITDA and sort of the off-the-cuff statements Adam would make about how profitable their locations were is ignore that. So they had no costs of rent in these locations but they were taking in rent from their subtenants. And that, therefore, makes these 
locations much more valuable than they are in reality and profitable. So it was a way of taking a company that had a $2 billion annual loss and saying, no, we actually make 25% profit margins. Now, did people believe it? Yes. I think that if you really like look close at community adjusted, even uh, depending on how look how close you'd look, but but if, when I would talk to investors, they would always talk about how great WeWork's operating margins were, and clearly they just weren't looking close enough, or there was so much kind of misdirection going on that WeWork would always just point to no, but look at this case study, and then omit a lot of important things from the case study. So I don't think this was a case of fraud, uh, like and and lying. I think this was just like a magician misdirecting and getting people to focus on, I guess, the flashy things and not the slipping the card under the table. Now, a little more broadly, I think that's key to this whole story. Theranos was about someone lying, a charismatic entrepreneur lying to unsophisticated investors. This was about a charismatic entrepreneur using numbers, real numbers, to get sophisticated investors to delude themselves. So in a sense, it it was much more impressive that he was able to get some really smart investors to not look at something so banal and and crystally clear a real estate company and see it for something that it wasn't. We've talked a lot so far about the investors. When we've referred to the investors, we're talking about people who've cut the big checks or who did cut the big checks. But of course, in any startup, there's another class of investors who are much smaller in dollar terms, but they're important and they are much more exposed and at risk, the upsides and the downsides of the business. And that's, of course, its employees. I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about WeWork's employees. You say that there was a certain suspension of disbelief that they had to embrace to work at WeWork, but were those employees counting on things like stock grants and a huge IPO as a payoff? Were they accepting lower compensation than maybe they otherwise would be able to get in salary in expectation of that payoff? And do you get a sense that they understood the risks? Because it sounds like maybe some of the private investors diluted themselves, were employees doing the same thing? And what impact did the fall of WeWork from its 2019 heights have on employees of the company? Employees were some of the biggest losers here. Adam, like he would with fundraisers, was actually quite good at recruiting. And what he would do, particularly in the early days, is pull people into a room and say, take out a a, a napkin or a piece of paper and say, look, here's what we're going to give you in stock options today. And here's what they're going to be worth when we're a $1 billion company. Here's what they're going to be worth when we're a $5 billion company. And here's what they're going to be worth when we're a $10 billion company. The whole point, obviously, was to emphasize you were going to get really rich working here because that's what Adam focused on. (laughs) He rightfully knew that's what lots of people are interested in. And so when people would ask for a raise, he'd be like, but no, our valuation is going to be much bigger in the future. We're we're giving you a great deal right now. And and so everything was predicated on WeWork being a growth company and people getting rich that way. And so what happens with stock comp and options is you have a floor that is lower than the valuation of the company than when you're getting hired. But it means that if the valuation of the company falls, you get nothing. And so that's precisely what happened. So basically you had, when the IPO happened, you had all these employees who were really expecting some sort of windfall. The later you got hired, the less you were essentially going to get. But certainly the early runs were expecting a lot of money. And then it quickly goes to zero because the share price fell from 110 to $19. And like almost everyone had above 90% of the company had options that had a strike price of above $19. That was extremely painful. Later on, they got repriced. So they got something, but not much, certainly compared to what they were imagining. 
what's Adam up to today? What's we work up to today? And are there any winners in this story? Adam is a great winner of this story because he is extremely wealthy. He was one of the more amazing facets of this was how much he was able to extract from the company or from SoftBank, both upon exit. In order to let go of control of the company, because he had founder control, where he literally controlled it, even though he owned 30% of the stock, he got SoftBank to give him kind of one good deal after another, and in the end left with hundreds of millions of dollars from SoftBank and WeWork shareholders. And then he also still owned stock in the company, and so he sold that. And together, that's left him a billionaire. It's about between him and his co-founder, it totals up to over $2 billion. That's a lot of money (laughs) for someone who essentially built a a company that has burned through $11 billion plus over the years and is not worth very much. So he's a winner. In terms of WeWork, they took this $11 plus billion that they've lost and made a company worth around $8 billion today. But one of the nice things about it is, unlike, I don't know, spending it all on subsidies to find drivers for your app, they actually have physical real estate. So there are some assets there. They're now an extremely large company just by square footage. And maybe they'll be well positioned to be a good receptacle of office space as companies figure out what to do in the return to the office or the future of work. Maybe not. We'll see. But I do not think anyone's going to be valuing them like a a tech company at $47 billion anytime soon. So yeah, to be determined that that chapter has yet to be written, but that's where we are today. I'd like to close by asking you about some potential takeaways from this book and from the story. If you were talking to entrepreneurs or investors who have read this book, what is the key takeaway that you would like either group to have? And is it a different takeaway for entrepreneurs and another one for investors? Or is it the same takeaway for both? I think at least one of the things I really learned and or cemented was just how bendable our minds are. One of the craziest thing about this was that there were so many smart people that were fooled pretty easily that this company was something that it wasn't. All you had to do was like really just look at the facts and be like, all of its revenue comes from real estate. All its expenses are real estate plus like surf pools and elementary schools. This is a real estate company. But people were very easily able to give up reality and forget the laws of gravity and just think that this mind elevating company is going to be worth something really big because I met the CEO. And and this is how really smart investors committed to investing within minutes of meeting Adam and then would have their staff do diligence. And then the staff would come back and be like, yeah, it's a real estate company. And they'd be like, no, we're doing this investment. It's more than that. And I guess that to me was very scary, how easy it was for and, and reckless these investors overseeing so much money were when I thought that so much more thought went into this. So I guess it would be don't lose touch. The admonition here is don't lose touch with reality. <laughs> Apply critical thought. Like it's not that hard. I mean, I was doing it. I took one econ class in college. I like know how to use Excel a little and that's about it. But it was sitting there. It's like, oh, this looks like a real estate company, but it's valued like a tech company. And <laughs> that was essentially the story for years until it blew up. Our guest has been Elliot Brown, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and co-author of The Cult of We. We work Adam Newman and The Great Startup Delusion which he co-authored with Maureen Farrell, a fellow reporter at The Journal. I'll add a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Elliot, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Uh, Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, 
or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.